9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and very strangely, I am in Roanoke, Virginia, um, but I am joined from New York City by both um, my regular co-host on Thursday afternoons, Ryan Goodman of Just Security. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And also, not too far from there, I think, Asha Rangappa of uh, Yale Law School and also um, a regular commentator. Well, both you guys are on TV all the time. Um, it's very nice of you to take the time out to join us. Thank you. And I just want to put a shout out to um, Jackson, the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs, which is where I am now at Yale. And I, I left the law school, so. Um, oh, terribly sorry. Make and sure the they get the credit. <laughs> no, no. And the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs is a very, place. it's a very cool place. And uh, I've, t- I've given talks up there and lectures and great students. So you're very lucky to be there. Thank you. Uh, um, okay, so, you know, obviously we're here, um, you know, the day before democracy ends, uh, <laughs> although uh, although it's, you know, it's sort of going away in small um, uh, bites. Uh, and uh, tomorrow, Friday, uh, which is when some people may be listening to this, we may see a bigger bite than any of us have seen in our lifetimes. But... You know why be uh, why why let me uh, predict the outcome when you guys can do it? So let me let me start with you, Asha. How do you think the Senate trial is going? Well, I think that it's actually elicited a lot of important information that I think many Americans probably weren't following as closely. Um, particularly, of course, I'm talking about the House managers' case, um, and so you know even though it's not headed in the direction uh, that I would hope that it would, I think it has served a really important function um, for our democracy and for educating the public and for letting them know, you know, what the standards are that we are now at and that the Republicans are willing to accept moving forward. And I think that that's really important in terms of being able to hold, you know, them accountable um, when the elections come again. Well, I think that's an excellent point. And in fact, I made it in a uh, column in USA Today, which appeared in USA Today uh, in print today and yesterday online. Ryan, do you also agree with me? (laughs) (laughs) Of of course. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, of course. No, I was going to, yeah, in a sense, yes. So I was going to agree with Asha um, that I do think I mean, look, that I think both what you had initially said, uh, David, in terms of a dismal outlook for something that's a, you know, a real body blow to democracy, rule of law, the constitutional structure with what's about to come down, um, voting for no witnesses and an acquittal along party lines of some sort. Um, And at the same time, I completely agree that this has 
in a certain sense, transfixed a lot of the nation, focusing on a deeper understanding of just how extreme the positions are of this uh, administration, especially with um, Julian, uh, Julian, especially with uh, Dershowitz articulating it in such a crude but explicit manner, and at the same time, the presentation of this overwhelming evidence and how much of this is a cover-up. So I, I, you know, I used to say that um, Mitch McConnell had a no-win situation because one of the outcomes is full exposure of damning information against the president, and the other one is demonstration of a sham trial, and this is the second path, uh, demonstration of a sham trial and exposure of why it is a sham um, that I think many people have will wake up to because of the overwhelming uh, percentage of Americans that are currently in favor of having uh, witnesses across party lines. Well, at the risk of agreeing with both of you, uh, which is, you know, the kind of thing you don't see on uh, cable television where people want to have big fights. Um, uh, not only do I agree with both of you, but I would add to it that invariably the fact that a lot more people have seen this case made will have an effect on the political atmosphere for the rest of the year. That's a salutary thing. Um, uh, the fact that uh, the case has been made and uh, uh, there is some degree of accountability here, even if there's not a conviction, uh, was certainly one in the court of public opinion and inevitably one with posterity, which will take the facts more seriously uh, than the politics. Uh, that's, you know, another, uh, you know, benefit here. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think there are a lot of positive things that have come out of this. Having said that, um, can I can I'll I just say, throw in one on the positive side before you, sure. you know, we go down the doomsday path? Um, you know, I also think that this highlights how, you know, we, we, we tend to think of things as, you know, inevitable and it's just everything is all over. What I often think about, what I've been thinking about as I've been watching this trial is, you know, uh, I guess, what is it now, six, seven months ago, um, when the Mueller report came out, I, we thought it was done then. You know, it, it didn't look like Congress was going to pick up the baton. Um, it felt like we had just come to, you know, the end of the line and we were just kind of uh, relegated to dealing with this um, until the election. And then, you know, this entirely new situation that Trump created himself, you know, appeared. And who knew that we would be in impeachment proceedings um, back in April when we were like, okay, I guess it's all over. So my point is, you know, I think even now, we don't know what's going to happen between now and this November. So I just, I, I want to warn against, you know, whatever the Senate does is being kind of some final say. I think there are many more shoes that are going to drop and we don't know how that will play out. Yeah. And well, what I was going to say is that my final point before you know, turning to the, the, the knob a little bit, as you suggested, is that one of the things that a lot of people predicted before this trial, and in fact, a number of people said, don't undertake this impeachment for this reason, is a backlash. And the backlash didn't come. And we've talked about that a little bit here. But quite the contrary, uh, particularly on this issue of witnesses, you're seeing sort of an average of 70, 75% of the American people saying, they think there ought to be witnesses. Well, if the trial ends without witnesses, um, uh, then you're, you know, you're going to have 
a very substantial part of the American people who, you know, have come to the conclusion that this wasn't a fair trial. And whether they're going to talk about that every day at lunch or not is unclear, but it's got to have a political effect. Now, having said that, um, you know, there is damage being done here, uh, damage being done to our democracy, because a case has been made by the president's defenders that, you know, I think goes beyond what Nixon said, which if the president does it, it's not a crime, to if the president does it, it's in the national interest, which means he can use the totality of the U.S. government to help him do whatever he wants. Uh, and if he seeks to advance his own reelection, then that has to be viewed as being in the national interest. And so he can do anything he wants to help his own reelection. And of course, that is a doorway to unfair elections, but it's also yet another step towards the president being above the law, um, which is, is literally sort of the first principle on, on which the United States was founded, is that no individual is above the law. Um, but let me, again, from, from both of your perspectives, as it, assuming that we are on the verge of an acquittal here, uh, and that may happen very soon, might happen tomorrow, may not happen. They may, you know, get a witness or two, but then it'll happen a week from now. What's the consequence of that in your mind, Asha? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I put the phone away from my, um, uh, I had to cough. Oh, the question. Ter terribly sorry. Well, no, the question is that, that, that a lot has happened here that um, uh, uh uh, diminishes certain principles that we've depended on or takes a takes takes chunk out of them and and that includes the idea that no one is above the law because president would be in this case and that the president can can do any, anything the president does you know that he deems is in the national interest is perfectly okay but you know how what what damage yeah, you do know, you think these conclusions will have yeah, and I well, I think the damage is that the conclusion is not even that the president is above the law. It's worse than that. It's just that there is no when it comes to the president, there is no law. You know, saying he's above the law that actually suggests that there's like some line somewhere that he could be above it or like Dershowitz's argument has just completely conflated any distinction between what is the president's private interest versus the national interest. And it's just been this huge, you know, Jedi mind trick of what, what, you know, what, what standards we even have. So, um, you know, I think it, and I mean, I don't even know what kind of damage it's going to do. I, the question for me is, are they really, I mean, if, these these Republicans who are willing to go along with this these shenanigans, um, I I can only assume that if and when the tables are turned, they will suddenly come back to principles. I mean, I don't think they're going to be like I have to be consistent, you know. But now it's a Democratic president, so I get. I mean, so I but I don't know. I mean, how you know we're kind of now at this point just relying on self-regulation, I guess, moving forward for the conduct of the presidency of the United States. Yeah, self-regulation, which you know is is another way of saying 
the law of the United States the, uh, uh, and uh, is determined entirely by one individual. But, you know, Ryan, yeah. part, part, part of this was illustrated in a question that was thrown the direction of um, the president's defense counsel um, today um, regarding where the line was. And essentially, I think it was uh, Philbin who stood up and took the, the, made the response, essentially said, well, it's hard to say. But his punchline was there is no line. There is no line for the president to cross because it's up to the president, which means, you know, sky's the limit. And, and you know, that, that, that notion that there is no line is, is, it seems to me, a deeply damaging precedent to set. Where, 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 where are you? Or should I be worried about something else, Ryan? Um, I'm, so let me just amplify your worry. Um, so I have thought that most optimistically, um, kind of like what Usher's saying, that maybe this will just be left in the dustbin of this particular travesty of a trial, and it won't have any afterlife in our nation and changing the, what every sensible person might know about the way in which our rules work and the structure of our polity works. But what shocks me is um, in the last 24 hours, the Wall Street Journal editorial board has this very, cons- very short editorial, and it full-blown endorses uh, the Dershowitz theory, quotes Filburn for the same idea. I'll just read you a line from it, quote, Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard professor and another defense lawyer, elaborated that every politician, every president tends to equate his re-election interest with the public or national interest. If the House can impeach a president for what it claims are self-interested motives, then majorities will have cause to impeach any future president, end quote. It's deeply worrisome, just to make it understated, <laughs> that this is a new normal, that this is the the new normal that, you know, Bob Mueller had warned about in explicit terms when he testified. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial. They don't even have to do this. That's what's also so nutty about it. He's going to be acquitted. They don't need to make these arguments. This is the groundwork that they're laying. So I agree. What Philburn said in response to that question is deeply worrisome, but it's not limited to this week. I think it's with us, and we have to uh, grapple with that in a very serious way. And then when he is acquitted, he in particular, and those are close to him, I think will feel... Uh, vindicated and much more empowered. So here we are. Um, Asha, has has there been anything in recent memory quite as good for Yale as the fact that they constantly identify Dershowitz as Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz? <laughs> I, I, and I say this with, you know, all due deference to, you know, Harvard Law graduate Ryan Goodman, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, I actually think that's been a lot of Alan Dershowitz's rebranding, to be honest. Um, I mean, from what I understand, I don't think he has been a particularly engaged um, alum, uh, alumnus of, of the law school. And I think, you know, the, the law school has tried to maintain its relationship with um, people who have been even more controversial. You know, they they unveiled a portrait of uh, Justice Thomas just a few years ago and have invited him back. And, you know, there was a whole imbroglio at the law school because, um, you know, the, they sent out a press release when Justice Kavanaugh was um, appointed. 
So, you know, I don't think it's been a matter of the law school disavowing him as much as him wanting to be seen as as a Harvard law professor. That's that's my sense. I don't think I he never uh, touts his affiliation with the law school as far as I know. What's your reaction to I'm sorry, what's your reaction <laughs> to Ryan's point? That, you know, that when you see the Wall Street Journal moving in this direction and all these attorneys, attorneys moving in this direction, but the, to fight this, the, despite the fact that what Dershowitz said is, in Adam Schiff's words, constitutional madness, um, it seems to be, you know, there seems to be an effort to make it a mainstream view. There is. I mean, I, I think the Wall Street Journal editorial page has just been completely bonkers for a while now um, when they were writing about FISA or Carter Page or Michael Flynn. I mean, they they were really just parroting the Fox News narrative. So, you know, very different from the news side of the paper. But, uh, you know, so I don't I, I just kind of discount it um, as being a part of that ecosystem. But yes, I do think they are trying to mainstream it. And I think it's you know, telling that, you know, whether it was a Republicans or he himself who didn't want to be on the the panel of legal scholars who actually testified in the House, um, he tends, so this is both the media and I think a part of his, uh, his posturing. If you notice, when he, whenever he's spouting his, you know, theories, he doesn't appear with another legal scholar alongside of him who will point out his flaws, you know, or even that, hey, you're misquoting my own work, <laughs> you're misciting my work. Um, he won't do that. He, he, is, he is allowed to kind of be in this vacuum. I think the media also does this, uh, you know, they, um, before the uh, president's lawyers gave their side, I mean, I just saw him everywhere on every network, just kind of giving his you know, wacko theory, and there was like no pushback. And obviously, the journalists aren't there to do that. That's not their area of expertise. But it was very worrisome to me that there was no overcompensation, knowing that what he was saying is false, to make sure that the contrary view or the fact that he is wrong was, was saturating, you know, the information space as much as he was. Um, so, you know, I will say, I think there's been some, um, unintentional complicity in, in mainstreaming his views, to be honest. So let me ask you a question, Ryan, that's a little counterintuitive because when I listen to, for example, Adam Schiff, um, uh, as, as the lead house manager making this case, I'm often quite inspired. He's very articulate. He expresses himself, uh, clearly in accessible language. Um, and I think he's made the case in a very compelling way. And a number of his other House managers, although I don't think all of them, have been nearly as good. Hakeem Jeffries comes to mind as somebody who's been nearly um, as good. Zoe, uh, Zoe Lofgren has been nearly as good. Um, what have they done wrong? How would you critique, how would you critique the House managers? Um, okay. And... Uh, um Hakeem Jeffries, I don't know, is an NYU law graduate, so. <laughs> um, and I think he's been excellent, really excellent. Um, so I have a couple critiques. Um, 
One is, and otherwise I agree with you, because I think they've been so astonishing. I think Chip in particular has been so, so astonishingly good, and then the people that you name as well uh, as other house managers. Um, I guess I think two things are on the top of my list. Um, one is the key to me is the calling of the witnesses, um, and that seems to be where either this entire process is going to go south or it could have a second life in the wild. And, and if John Bolton testifies, then we're in a whole new ball game. Uh, you know, I just tweeted out in the last, actually like 10 minutes before the podcast, that Adam Schiff has seems to have now laid on the table his proposal, which is, hey, let's just agree to the Clinton model, have one week of depositions, and the Senate can go back to its regular business during that week. One week, one week. Um, and it just, that's like, that's pretty late. I think they should have done that yesterday. I think they should have focused on it yesterday. Um, it really is to put the pressure on, uh, these, the senators that it has become so obvious, uh, what it means to negate that very modest, uh, proposal. So that's, that's one, I guess, um, it's late coming in a sense, but marvelous proposal at the same time. Second one is I have said this publicly and I know there's another side to this, but my thought is, I did think that the Democrats made a tactical error, not a strategic error, but a tactical error in raising Hunter Biden first and discussing at great length uh, Joe Biden and what he did in 2015, 2016. I think it legitimized the uh, Trump's uh, team coming full blast with hours on uh, Biden, the Bidens in that context, and it kind of opened the door for them. I think that it would be better for the House managers to just say that that is so completely irrelevant. And that is why they're not addressing it in their um, initial presentation. So that, but uh, you know, that doesn't amount to as uh, great an issue. And I guess the last one is, um, uh, I, I, I understand also some reasons as to why this was ended up being the case, but Justin Amash, uh, I think would have changed the complexion of the um, entire trial uh, by having been on the House manager's team. Just for one example, uh, CNN on the top right-hand corner, every time there's an exhibit or a video by the House managers, top right-hand corner says Democrats. And it, and it just would be, they wouldn't be able to do that if Justin Amash was on the team. And it's wrong to call the Democrats, it's the House managers. Mm -hmm. That's and, a good point. Yeah, yeah, and I just, and the whole week would have not been about that. And when people refer to the Democrats argument, it always just uh, aggravates me because it's unfair and it puts it in a political valence that's not accurate about mm -hmm. what's going on here. Uh, so I think that would maybe be the third issue that I'd uh, point out. Do you have any critiques of the House managers, um, Asha? What's that? I said, do you have any critique of the House managers? Of the House managers? Um, I don't really think so. I think they've done an amazing job. I have been actually uh, incredibly, you know, impressed with um, Adam Schiff. I, I didn't know he was such a skilled, you know, orator. And um, I think he was very powerful. I think also their use of video has been incredibly effective um, with the caveats that Ryan mentioned. I wasn't expecting that, and I think that that was a huge surprise as well on the first day. Um, so no, I don't. I don't have any substantive critiques. 
What about Ryan? The the the, the narrowness of the case in retrospect. Um, I you know I just saw uh, that there was a story in the Daily Beast that um, uh, Igor uh, Fruman was a longtime associate of Paul Manafort. And, you know, every time I look at the Ukraine case, I see a tie back to the Russia case. Um, and, of course, one thing the House managers decided to do long ago was not bring up any of the Mueller obstruction things in this impeachment uh, effort, uh, not tie things back to the Mueller report. Um, now, perhaps that's because it's because it's complicated, um, but another case could be made that it might add gravity to this. Or, or do you think they were right to keep it this narrow? I know you've thought over over the past couple of months that they're right to keep it narrow. In retrospect, do you think they're right to keep it narrow? Um, you know, I'm not so sure, but uh, I think that at, at a minimum, maybe broadening it out to understand some of the Russian interests behind uh, Giuliani and his cabal. Um, so the oligarch Pertash, and to say more about that would have been helpful to tie it in. I, I think it also been helpful to tie it in just as a framing mechanism because then it um, accentuates the ways in which, you know, hashtag Moscow Mitch is involved in this. So it's about, you know, bending towards uh, Russian interests over American democratic interests. And that would have been more salient. But um, I don't know, you know, I, I just think that if you bring in, if they, had, if they had as a counterfactual brought in more the Russia piece and the Mueller investigation, at some level, I think it would have um, hurt because it would look like, oh, the Democrats are always out to get uh, the president and they lost in the Mueller thing and now they're trying to resuscitate it and, and the like. So and they and they could otherwise just stay with a laser focus as they have on the allegations that are so serious that have captured the moderate purple district Democrats in the House as well that they think sells better or is understood better is a better way of putting it um, by the American public and and they've made the case it's an overwhelming case they made the case and it's laser sharp laser sharp um, one more um, on the other hand <laughs> on the other hand because they don't go to defend the Mueller investigation, they keep getting knocked by the president's team that says, oh, Mueller found no um, conspiracy or uh, no collusion and just other fabricated ideas about what Mueller did and didn't find, and they're not responding uh, to it. So it's almost like those are just time after again, uh, the president's team laying punches that there's no rebuttal to them and people are still walking away, the American public, with the idea that the Mueller investigation was a dud uh, rather than the Mueller investigation found multiple data points of collusion, just not beyond a reasonable doubt for, sufficient for a trial, um, plus all of the crimes and the obstruction that mirror the obstruction and the abuse of power with Ukraine. So I see both sides of it. In the end, I still think it cashes out in favor of how they did it. Uh, Asha, one of the things that uh, has come up uh, in the question section, um, which has been like switching the channels between alternative universes, um, uh, but but one of the I mean there have been a couple of crossover questions that were interesting, but there been there was this effort by Rand Paul to out the whistleblower, 
and he was rebuffed a couple times in this from the chief justice and then somehow question about it sort of came in under the door. Um, but this sort of speaks to me of the sort of law, the, I, I don't know if the right term is the lawlessness of the approach of the Trump defenders. Um, but it's, 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 it certainly um, shows a lot of contempt for the law. And, and, I, and I, you know, I know, you know, you spend time also in, in, in the FBI and, and have a special appreciation for the importance of people like whistleblowers in protecting their identities. And I was just wondering what your reaction was to all of that. I mean, I think it's despicable and it's, I think contempt is a very good word for it and bad faith. And I, I mean, I don't even understand what that narrative, I mean, I guess I do. They want to make it about the whistleblower and who he donated to, I guess, or whatever. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's interesting that they become sticklers about rules and laws when it suits them. Right. I mean, you know, they will drill down into the FISA statute and, you know, um, to, to, you know, find anything that could have been um, even an internal procedural misstep within the FBI to uh, essentially invalidate anything that came out of that and call it an abuse of power. And then yet, um, you know, when it comes to something that will be politically beneficial to them, it, it is not that. And so, the opportunistic use of the law is is very troubling. Um, and again, you know, I, I think you're going to see hypocrisy down the line when they are tested on on the positions that they're taking um, when when it comes to somebody of uh, the other side. But um, it has been sad, sad to see that everything is now, you know, characterized, as Ryan said, as this is a Democrat making the argument, or is it a Republican, and who did they donate money to, and who was this judge appointed by? And I don't remember that being such a huge part of the conversation and uh, in terms of assessing someone's um, truthfulness or credibility um, before, before Trump, and I think it's a, it's a hugely damaging outcome. Ryan. There may be witnesses, there may not be witnesses, but after the, I, you know, I have, I have this kind of feeling that this discussion is a little bit reminiscent of the Kavanaugh discussion, right, where we, right. we finally did get to hear from witnesses and then we went right back to the same argument. It was very narrowly defined, you know, a lot of witnesses were left out, one was brought in, she was, you know, uh, 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 there were very, you know, sort of constraints on the testimony, and and then you know we had the 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 the, the approval of the Kavanaugh nomination um, as had been scheduled, and I think we're going to get to the end of this, and we're going to have the acquittal that we knew was coming, and that that's going to be a source of great frustration for uh, not just House managers but a lot of people in America who recognize. Um, you know, the injustice that'll be done. But what do you do the day after? What, what do you do the day after? What do people do? How do we, you know, how, what, 
what do we, you know, I mean, is it just like, then this is over, like the Mueller, you know, I mean, everybody dropped the Mueller report pretty hard. And, you know, that always seemed strange to me when there was so much in it that cried out for following up. Um, do we move on from this to focusing exclusively on the election? Um, uh, you know, the likelihood that Trump abuses his power again in the run-up to this election is great. It's one of Schiff's primary reasons for suggesting that there is an urgency to this. Um, you know, I just how do people prepare themselves for the day after the acquittal? Right. Um so I do think it's a different day depending upon whether there are a few Republicans that join in the vote to convict. So then it's, I think that changes what that day feels like. Um, but assuming that there's not even that, um, I do, I, I don't know. I mean, it's such a hard question because um, it's just such a dismal thought in terms of how do you what do you pick up from there? But I do think two things. One, just to respond very directly to what you had asked, David, and it was what I was thinking about as well. You know, after the Mueller investigation closes and Mueller does his testimony and they move on, then the media moved on. And for and I think that that's such a big mistake here, especially because so many of the facts are still coming out. And when Bolton's book comes out, it should get significant attention um, or they should call Bolton in to testify now, um, which, in fact, I do think would help him get tra- get past his pre-publication review if he testifies on the same subject matter. Um, and when more of the Parna stuff comes out, it should not be like that's all news people have heard it and it's passed, but rather we need to know more. Um, and the Parna stuff could seriously implicate the president in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act if the president, if there, if there's this intersection with Parnas's and Giuliani's business interests in Ukraine. Uh, so I think there's really something important that's laying in wait there. And so that's one part of it, that this story is not over with, with respect to specifically the Ukraine allegations. And then the second one is I do think um, that the uh, an upside of, in a certain source is democratic uh, revitalization, where impeachment, some people thought was an you know, an easier out and their attention and energies were focused around that as being some kind of remedy, uh, given the scale of the abuses by the president. And that ain't it. And what is it is you, the people like to get out there and mobilize, not just vote single as a single person, but mobilize um, to do so. And that this has just, you know, if anything doesn't make that point, then I don't know what else could, but this farce of a trial and a sham um, cover-up in which the Republican leadership is responsible for it. Um, and the only way to change that is through, at this stage, um, is through uh, the ballot box. Well, there's, there's, there's certainly that. Asha, same question for you, because I think there's going to be, much as there was in the Mueller process, there are a lot of people who are emotionally invested in this. There are a lot of people who care about it as a constitutional issue. Um, uh, and, uh, there's going to be a sense, you know, that the battle is lost. Um, Trump has bar bars appointing, you know, new people to top positions all the time that will protect Trump. Uh, new judges are being appointed and, and approved by the Senate, uh, constantly, uh, the, this trial will have, uh, established, um, 
at, at, at least a semblance of, of kind of new doctrines that give the president much more license. You know, where, where, where do we go from there? You know, or are, are we really in the middle of a downward slide that we don't want to acknowledge? Um, I mean, I think we just keep going, you know, um, I, I get quite irritated with kind of the fatalistic despondency, nothing matters or whatever. I mean, I get it. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, I, I believe in resilience and I believe that resilience comes from you, you take the hand that you're given. I mean, this is in personal life and I think it applies to politics, it applies to everything. And you say, what's the next thing I can do? Um, and, and how do, how do we go forward? So I, I personally don't like the, you know, the, like everybody wear sweatpants and give up, um, kind of approach huh. to this. Um, I think that, you know, there is a way that, well, well, here's what I'll say about that. That approach, I think actually feeds into the problem because what happens is that it, it suggests that people have bought into the counter narrative that's being pushed. I mean, part of the reason that, you know, I, I remember the Mueller uh, outcome, you know, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, that was a big dud and, you know, Mueller should have done, I mean, from people who had supported the investigation, I don't know what they were expecting, but they fed into this, you know, collective sense that somehow that investigation had failed. Um, and as a result, it was like, you know, politically, people wanted to drop it like a hot potato. There was very damning information in there. And that should have been, you know, I know with Ryan um, at Just Security, we came up with a, a summary of the Mueller report to make it more accessible. But that should have been the first thing is to make this more accessible to people uh, in a very direct way to continue to say it's not a hoax. I mean, part of it is, you know, uh, there, these catchphrases get thrown out and then they just become the, um, the accepted, you know, tagline for it. And it's, you know, Mueller was a dud, you know, the Russia hoax or whatever. And we, and it just kind of sticks. Um, and so there has to be, you know, you have to realize we're now in the information space and saturating that with messages is what is important. And so, you know, wear sweatpants and give up really can see, you know, seeds that space to um, all of this false uh, narrative. So I think, you know, personally, I think that this trial has given a lot of, I mean, I, I think that any candidate on the Democratic side could make probably 20 campaign uh, ads using clips from this trial alone. Um, and, you know, adding in testimony from, from the House, um, you know, hearings and things like that. Uh, you know, will they choose to do it? I don't know. I don't know that they are as strategic or unified in messaging. Um, and when you're dealing with, and I don't like to use this word necessarily, but it kind of is what it is, information warfare, um, you really have to be strategic about how you're characterizing what's happening um, and what, you know, how you want people to receive that message. I'm very inspired by what you, what you just said. I'm not, I'm not being, uh, snarky here. Um, I, I think, no, yeah, I know. I, that's why I have to clarify that because that's the assumption. But I, uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, Ryan, are you wearing sweatpants? 
No, but I should purchase them on Amazon or something. Um. <laughs> no, but but I mean, you you, you got to admit, Asha's point is right. I, I particularly Hello, struck with, great. you know, the the practical reality is this trial has given candidates in November a huge amount of ammunition, and yeah. if you say it's February, which it will be in a, in, a, in a couple of days, and you say it's February. There are, are, are now, you know, nine months of campaigning that we've got to do. And we can show on videotape Republicans turning their back on the Constitution, Republicans turning their back on crimes being committed, Republicans, um, uh, you know, trying to undermine the rule of law and democracy in America, senator by senator who is up for re-election, um, Mitch McConnell who is up for re-election, the defenders of the president who is up for re-election, um, uh, then you can say, well, you know, the, the, the first jury may have had 100 members, but the next jury has 130 million members. Um, and the 130 million member jury is the one that counts. No, I completely agree. Um, and I, and, and uh, just to add another line to it is, um, Mitch McConnell is counting on uh, people not doing that. That's what he's counting mm-hmm. on. He's counting on people forgetting. That's, that's the calculation. His calculation is we're going to suffer this political blow in the next few days and week, and then the media will move on, and people will move on, and uh, how much do they remember X having happened a year ago, or Y having happened a year ago? So that's what they're counting on, and I, I agree. That's another part of the vigilance here is – to um, not let that happen. Okay, that's our battle cry as we end this episode of Deep State Radio. And it comes from Asha Rangappa, and it's (laughs) put away your sweatpants. (laughs) Exactly. Dress dress nice. Dress dress for success in November. Um, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that is exactly where we ought to finish. I thank you very much, Asha, who is at the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs at Yale. And I thank you very much, Ryan, who, in addition to being the co-editor of Just Security, uh, is a professor at Hakeem Jeffries um, <laughs> uh, uh, Law School. Um, for, and there, you know, soon there will be a Hakeem Jeffries Hall there, I suspect. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody chin up and, uh, you know, keep focused on the, uh, on the big picture as both of these guys are. Uh, if you want more information on uh, what we're doing here at Deep State Radio, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, and if you want to hear about our upcoming event that we're going to be doing on May 14th in Washington, D.C., um, uh, with just Security, and with uh, about uh, 15 or 20 other leading podcasts, uh, sort of bringing the new media perspective on what's happening in Washington, D.C., go to the website, click on the button for more information that you can register, and if you give us your email, you will be able to get uh, first-come, first-serve uh, tickets and a discount, and you won't want to miss it. It's going to be a really remarkable event, and a lot of Uh, folks that you uh, like and follow uh, from uh, government, but also from all of these podcasts uh, will be there and and you have a chance to meet them. So go there, do that, come back next week for more of this. uh, And remember, uh, no sweatpants, uh, uh, at least until November. Uh, Thank you very much.